You're listening to the Journey to Impact Fireside Chat Series with Gino Borges, curator of the Poetry of Impact, a platform for supporting the collective inquiry into deep impact. As a part of the Poetry of Impact, the Journey to Impact podcast brings to life the ebb and flow inherent on the path of impact, illuminating the interior journey of the hearts and minds of today's top leaders in impact. Here, you'll hear the intimate stories of those who push forward to overcome self-limitations and societal barriers, to co-create a world where one day, all people and planet can thrive together. Hi, I'm Gino Borges, curator of the Journey to Impact podcast series. Joining us today is Brent Kessel. Brent is the co-founder and CEO of Abacus Wealth Partners, a $4 billion impact wealth management firm. Brent is also the co-founder of Align Impact. Brent has taught impact investing at MIT and also has been featured on the front page of the Wall Street Journal and the cover of Yoga Journal. His book, It's Not About the Money, was named one of the top five business books of the year by Kiplinger's Personal Finance Magazine. Brent is also a member of Tonic, a global network of impact investors that invest in positive social and environmental change. And I'm proud to announce that this conversation with Brent is brought to you as part of a partnership between Poetry of Impact and Tonic. Welcome, Brent. Thanks, Gino. It's great to be with you. Yeah, for sure. Well, I want to dive in um, right where we left off in a conversation a couple of weeks ago as part of Tonic um, and the Tonic 100% group. I'm equally as fascinated about this topic about enough. Mm-hmm. And it's so funny that I went back and looked at your book. They came out in 2008, and the first chapter pretty much is about enoughness. So you've been on this uh, journey of enoughness for a while. So this wasn't something that just popped up in uh, 2021 by any means. And I know it's dear to a lot of people because after, after that conversation that we had as part of the 100% group in Tonic, the WhatsApp thread just lit up. After that, and it was all about enoughness from a from a hundred different angles, yep. right? Yep. From the real material plane, like how much money to actually have in this crisis, to uh, more sort of the psychological aspect. So I want to begin there. Where where did that moment uh, sort of arrive that you sort of decided that wow, there's much more to this money equation than just being merely a certified you know financial analyst and helping people. Uh, generate uh, investment returns? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I, I think that, and thank you for reminding me about that part of the book. I actually hadn't pieced those together in my own mind, so I appreciate that. Um, <clears throat> I'd say for me, the journey started very young. I was actually, I remember being 17 and my mom's boyfriend had owned a Jewish deli for like 30 years. And he sold it when I was 17 for $300,000. And this is in like the mid-80s, I guess, late 80s. And uh, I remember thinking to myself, wow, if I had $300,000, I could invest that, make about 10%, live on $2,000 a month. Um, You know, that's all I need. And then that would be enough. You know, and sure enough, as, you know, my 20s went on, the the monthly spend went up a little bit and and I realized it's not so simple to just get 10% guaranteed returns. And there's this thing called taxes and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, flash forward 
start a family, you know, start a business, did all these other things for the, the ensuing decades. And I and then found myself uh, about two years ago realizing that while I had more income and more net worth than I'd ever had in my life, this kind of excessive motivation that had driven me from a really young age was still there and, and maybe even there more than ever. And so I I was on a meditation retreat and I really wanted to, I started just questioning like, what's actually behind this? What, what is driving me towards more and more and more? Because it's, it's obviously not my financial plan. It's obviously not the numbers. Um, there's something else. And, and what could I do about that? So I don't know if that fully answers your question, but yeah, it's, it's been a living question for me for a long time. And I think, the biggest thing I would want to share with people listening to this is like, first of all, I don't think there's one answer. I don't think there's the right answer that's at all universal. I think it's very individual. Um, and, and I think it's, it's like a marriage or something or raising a child. It's a, it's a never ending journey. It's, there's no perfection in it. There's no destination in it. Where are you at now in, in, in I started with uh, looking at the, you know, the deep sense of what the, uh, the wanting mind, you know, from a philosophical uh, or an existential perspective. But I mean, you exist in the material world. You're a co-founder of a firm. You're very uh, ambitious um, in terms of, you know, achievement and so forth. But I mean, where like are you right now? Seeing that journey. I I appreciate the question. So I mean, at this moment, where I am is really questioning, kind of what is enough time? I feel like I've answered the question of enough wealth. And I, the, I mean, just for people's benefit, what, what happened after that meditation retreat is my wife and I had a conversation in which we agreed that our consumption was plenty, was great. And in fact, we even sat down and defined kind of what of this consumption is essential. Like if push came to shove, if, you know, the shit really hit the fan in the world, like, how much would we really need? Downscale the house, you know, by this much, pay for this much education for our kids rather than the amount we're thinking of now, you know, one vacation instead of three, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so we defined that number, which was about a third, I'd say 40% of our current spend, um, which actually brought a huge amount of relief, like the sense of, oh, being, I was actually in the grocery store just a couple of days ago. And I, I just had this kind of like, you know, more, more of a sense of, of restraint or constraint around money. And, and so I was actually looking at some prices on, I don't remember what the product was at the moment, but I was at the shelves and I'm looking and I'm like, okay, I don't want to pay six seventy five for four ounces of whatever. And normally I don't even think twice. I just buy whatever looks interesting to me. And I, and I realized in that moment, you know, it's like we have, our culture has sold us this fantasy of, of, the ultimate freedom and happiness being never having to worry about money. And in that moment, I actually had this feeling of enjoyment of looking at the value, you know, looking at the value of something and what it costs. And it, and it came back and wrote my journal a little bit more and recognized that, wow, kind of everything in nature is resource constrained. Like there's nothing out there that there's no animal generally, I think, that can just say, I can have as much as I want of anything I want. Um, and I mean, maybe certain lions can, but they, I don't think they do. And, 
anyway, so maybe that's what led to that sort of good feeling in my body. But to, to answer your question more, after, after making that agreement with my wife about leveling off our consumption, I, I did a really extensive financial planning exercise and used some pretty sophisticated software to model out, all right, if we, if we are leveling off consumption and even reducing it later, but the income and the net worth stay on the trajectory they've been on for 25 years, how much surplus does that create for higher impact things, whether it's really effective philanthropy or very catalytic impact investing, and, and quantified that number and then went ahead and gave away last year many orders of magnitude more than we had ever given before as a, as a previous kind of annual high point. Um, and that ended up being really satisfying. And so just to bring this answer full circle, where I'm at at the moment is uh, number one, needing to re-up that kind of financial planning update and things have gone remarkably well in the past year financially. And so, you know, which I also feel kind of guilty about and a bit ashamed about because so much of the world has suffered this last year more than ever. Um, but that also just calls me to, all right, so what if we're still keeping consumption level, which we are, then there should be a bigger surplus this year. What's that number? Um, and then also looking at my time, like my human capital. What's enough? When have I worked enough? When have I you know, pushed my field building efforts enough? When have I helped the client enough? So that's, that's my leading edge at the moment. Can you take me into that? And that uh, first I've heard about the time um, quotient. Um, so you've touched on sort of the material plane, what your needs are, but um, where's sort of the edge or the burn on um, answering that at the intersection of enoughness and time for you? Um, I'm like, I, I've always been, kind of action biased is what my executive coach calls it. Uh, so <laughs> I just a fun term when I, you know, when I identify problem or, or have an idea, like I want to implement it yesterday. Um, so a big part of it has been, you know, as a CEO and having a leadership team that's pushing back on me and saying, Hey, no, we can't, we can't implement all these things all at once at the degree of quality that we want. So we have to prioritize. So that's been part of the burn is just like, I'm frustrated. I don't want to slow down on this. Um, you know, and so then I have to choose. I have to pick the things that are most important. Um, so that's part of the burn. And then, you know, to be perfectly honest, I, I'm 53, which I always thought throughout my younger life would be like the halfway point, would be really young. In, in my body, but I actually feel way older than I wanted to, you know, just I, like, I know we all joke in middle age about the aches and pains you never had before and injuries taking longer to heal and certainly all that's present, but it's, it's almost more, um, it, it's more insipid than that. Like it's, it's constant. There's like, you know, I have, I have this ringing in my ears that's been pretty constant for like 10 months now. I have other other things going on where it's just like the body is saying, yo, dude, too much. Like you're pushing me too hard here. And so I think, yeah, I've been, I've been just trying to listen to teachers and authors and others who are really much more about the somatic experience and, and listening to what the body has to say about pace and, you know, and realizing that no matter how, uh, exuberant my brain gets my conceptual mind <laughs> about 
the idea if the bot if it's not in balance with my body and with kind of energetic flows i'm going to probably do more harm than good yeah. uh, who are some of your guiding um the lights uh in in the somatic realm that are helping you with that in terms of um a check against the tyranny of the mind or the action bias it's great uh great question so uh there's a few. I mean, one I've shared with you recently is a is an author. He's a life coach and a lion tracker named Boyd Varty, uh, who has a book called uh, The Lion Tracker's Guide to Life that I highly, highly recommend. Um, it's really it basically uses the metaphor of tracking wildlife into like tracking our purpose, tracking our mission in life. And and what I love about it is like you lose the track constantly out in the wild. And then what do yeah. you do when you lose the track? You know, generally what they do, I'm sure I'm going to get this wrong, but if I remember right, you go back to where you last had the track and then you lift your gaze. Like you tend to be very myopically focused on the footprints right in front of you. But at that moment, you kind of got to look up and see what the birds are doing and see where the monkeys are, you know, shouting their alarm signals and see which way the winds are blowing and, you know, and therefore which wildlife would have already smelled you and cleared out. Um, and so like sensory openness um, from, from Boyd's perspective is a really cool teacher for me. Um, I did do about three years of somatic therapy um, with a therapist here in my hometown, and that was very helpful, just a lot of actual body movement and trauma release work. And I've done some other just kind of trauma release work with uh, an African-American woman named Nkem Ndofo, um, who is down here in L.A., and then my executive coach, um, whose name is Aiko Bethia, also an African-American woman uh, who works with Brene Brown's organization. And so mm -hmm. she, she does a lot around kind of vulnerability and, um, and just being, being direct and truthful with ourselves and then with the people around us. Um, so I could say a lot more, but yeah, my yoga practice and, you know, acupuncture and other kinds of healers, but um, th those are three that are having a current influence. Now, what is, um, so when you talk about sort of the action bias bumping up against, um, you know, your, your group members who are suggesting maybe not that fast or not that pace. Um, so, I mean, your mind's wanting to still do a lot of things, your somatic body's saying, whoa, 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 um, I suggest sort of otherwise, um, Share with me maybe now, now let's introduce another friend to, to this conversation, sort of the topic of loss, right? So in some ways, uh, whenever you realize that you're not going to be able to do everything that you thought you were going to do, or your body's not going to be able to do what you thought it was going to do, it's, it's a recognition of a little bit of loss. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, I like your a sense of losing yourself, not in a, in like in a, uh, a liminal space way, but in a real just visceral, like, Oh shit! Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I can feel my life sort of narrowing to some extent. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's necessarily bad or good. I just what I'm really interested in is how Brent Kessel sort of has integrated loss or recognized loss or not recognized loss as a part of this enough sort of equation. So the the honest, like unconscious drive part of me wants to say to you. What are you talking about? What's <laughs> nothing to lose, right? Because that's how I've run most of my life. Is uh -huh. like 
there's no cost here. There's no loss. There's like, we can do it all. Um, so that's like the really kind of transparent answer. Um, what it's interesting that you asked that and that you finger, you, you point your finger at that because it's, it's right on the money. This whole enough project, uh, which really was just me journaling for myself and thinking to myself, um, and now I've been willing to share it with some people who are kind of motivated to explore this in themselves just so they can see the raw, unvarnished, kind of very vulnerable you know, journey I've been on, um, started when my dad died. And so my, my dad died in February of 2018. And I think there was something about that, about sort of ascending to the top of the, you know, pit, patriarchal side of my family tree. That's like, oh, I'm next, right? And, um, you know, God willing, I'm next and my sons aren't or grandchildren or whatever. Um, but <clears throat> that, that shortened time for me. And then about a year later, I got this, uh, what turned out to be just a lipoma in my gum line. But the dental surgeon who took it out um, told me after the surgery how relieved he was because he actually thought there was a decent chance it would have been a sarcoma, in which case it would have been fatal with a very short life expectancy. Um, and so that really amped things into higher gear for me. But if I'm really honest, you know, like I, I, don't, I don't process loss well. You know, I don't really, I, hmm, how to say this right? I do. I process a lot. Like when I let something go, I do let it go. I don't come back and revisit it and have a lot of regret. I'm like, oh God, I wish I could go back to that. And I re need to reignite that. That kind of for whatever reason is not how I'm wired. But on the front end, like before I've let something go, I am super attached. Like I am really non-negotiable and, and pretty rigid, which I think makes it super hard on the team around me. So I've done a lot of work in the last year on the racial wealth gap, and I'm out there, you know, releasing a paper and teaching and talking about it. And like, I want a lot of people at Abacus to, you know, get really into this, but everybody's super burned out from the pandemic and, and really taxed. And we've grown a lot. And, you know, like asking people to take on one more thing is just too much at this moment. Um, and so like, let, like, it's literally where I am right at this very moment is okay, letting in the loss of not having my own company embrace this in a big way, um, or at least not yet. And <clears throat> that, that's not to say we don't have people who are really passionate about it, people who've already read it and love it, people who called me up saying they were crying tears over, over the fact that they're at a company where this work's being done. Um, so, you know, th that's going on at the same time, um, which is not, it's great. Um, but the other way I want to answer your question is that someone was sharing with me about a week ago, they said, look, I really think you have to keep going at this pace as, you know, as a hard driving CEO of a $4 billion firm to really anchor your vision into the company and into the industry around equity and diversity and inclusion and around you know, having a company that can do like this enough analysis for those clients who want it in a really rigorous way. Um, and, and you can't, if you let up that, that's all just going to go away. And this weekend I took some time to really kind of sink into that. And I'm like, yeah. oh, how important is that? How, like, what if that just goes away? And I don't know, I just like the sort of lightning bolt hit my head where I'm like, it doesn't effing matter. Like, it doesn't, <laughs> I'm not that important. You know, and like 
I need to take care of my body and like the stuff will run its own natural course. And I'm not the only one thinking these thoughts. And, you know, so I had just, there was a very profound, strong voice of no, you, you do not get to exceed your speed limit (laughs) just because, because you think you've got the biggest emergency going on. Like you gotta let that go. So this idea of exceeding the speed limit, uh, you know, I've always, you know, it's interesting that we talk about martyrdom in the context of like foreigners doing it under the name of religion. Uh, But, um, you know, as as white Anglo-Saxon Protestants are very good at our own form of sanctioned martyrdom, it's called achievement and sort of productivity. and so I'm wondering if there is an element of like, uh, where does that, where does that ideology come from? Even though we've renamed it with like le- um, positive terms rather, rather than pejorative terms. Uh, but I mean, there is a sense of like, I'm going to give up my, I'm going to give up my health and wellness and life for X, Y, and Z. I mean, yeah. where does that come from? Because there's no other animal on earth that's like in a symbolic sphere that has convinced itself that I'm going to go and do something silly that actually I may die from, uh, or if I don't die, I sure as shit may feel much less well as a result of it, even though I seemingly have achieved and, and done something that nobody else can do. Right. So where does this idea that like only I can do it and I have to do it sort of come from? <laughs> uh, that's a great question. You know, it's funny, as you, you referenced other species, and it made me think, I, I'm pretty sure there are other species that will sacrifice their lives or, or health for their young, like for the survival of the species, like when it's literally a survival moment. I think where we're so lost is that we've equated so many other things with that kind of mammalian survival instinct, like mm-hmm. even the way, we relate, the way we relate to money. I mean, some of the, some of the responses on that WhatsApp thread you talked about were, presupposed that there's a certain amount of money that would kind of bring a certain permanent security, you know, and there's no such thing. I mean, there's no permanent security from, from anything. Like we all leave this life with nothing. Um, So, but, but I think to your question about the martyrdom, I mean, obviously there's, there's kind of ego and narcissism and, you know, whatever. I mean, you you mentioned Protestant, I'm Jewish, but I think, whatever we are, um, especially those of us with privilege, uh, you know, white, male, American, et cetera, um, there is this, like, centrism, this, like, you know, we, we are the ones, you know, that can do it, and the life, the world is our oyster kind of vibe. Um, and, you know, so I, I think not questioning that is a big part of it. My colleague and friend, Rachel Robichotti, who's also now a tonic member, um, she she talks about the founding of America in this beautiful way, and I won't do it full justice, but it's like the people who found the white people who founded this country came from scarcity. They were running many of them for their lives, or running from economic deprivation, or running from persecution, and so they came to this you know naturally resource abundant place from a, a background of complete scarcity and survival fear. And so that's what we live within. We live within a mythology of scarcity, mm-hmm. you know, an entire construct where you can never have enough and you, you could die at any moment. And our ancestors in particular here in America 
were the, the self-selected group that was willing to take a large amount of risk to get away from something, to get to, you know, um, supposedly unbounded opportunity. So, you know, I think we've sort of been, it's, it's, you know, there's a somatic kind of inheritance around that. Yeah. Um, but then, yeah, I think, I mean, it's funny. I, my prior therapist once said to me, most people don't start to think about the stuff till they're about 50. Cause I do think it takes a health crisis or having some, some people you considered peers die for us to really, um, really like deeply feel that how impermanent life is and how kind of inconsequential we are going to be a hundred years from now. And that I think can really shift the balance if, if we can really live with that reality, that truth, you know, imbibe that truth more regularly. Why do you think that, um, I, so I was really moved by that, uh, that WhatsApp thread, um, because of how, how like quickly it came after our conversation as part of the tonic 100% gathering and like it came fast and furious and it came from a, a, much, a lot of different angles. Um, and I noticed even in the conversation that we had, there, there was a lot of interest. People, stay, it was it was late at night. Um, people had to stay up late at night to participate. And I'm like, why is this conversation so alive um, in so many people? Like, I mean, do you uh, like? Are you bumping into this as part of your practice? Or I mean, um, because I mean, it did not fall on deaf ears. Like, I mean, it like everybody was all in uh, on in the conversation. Yes. So the answer is yes. We're seeing a lot of interest in our practice, um, you know, a lot more than we've ever seen before from folks coming in saying, uh, you know, I've got this wealth, I've got this much wealth. And, you know, I, I want you to help me quantify how much of it I really need mm -hmm. um, and then help me be much more impactful with the rest of it. Um, and that's, that's a really interesting challenge for most financial planners, because as a, as a group, as a species, we are we are the most kind of risk averse, you know, cautious, prudent among the Homo sapiens. Like we're the <laughs> ones like, looking out for the threat, you know. So it's been, you know, so far I've I've we've had about I think seven of our thirty two uh, CFPs get trained in this way of thinking because you really have to set your biases aside. You have to say, oh, instead of making sure there's more than enough money at death, which could happen as late as 100 or 110, what I need to do is like you know, maximize for something else and just make sure there are enough other kind of safety valves, like this person's willing to moderate their lifestyle down later on, or you know, they're, they're willing to take this risk and then be financially dependent on kids or whatever. Like, and letting the client's values run the financial planning engagement rather than the planner's values and the profession's values, which are very anchored in, you know, kind of capitalism and money is security and th those sorts of principles. Um, but, the, you know, I mean, I, I think, you know, Robert Bogard and I are also working on a, a, a number of kind of enough project related efforts. Um, I think we're going to be doing something at a couple of future 100% events around this. And what I what I want to call attention to in this conversation is it's it's a delicate conversation because it's very personal and the risk of having it in any kind of group setting is the the landmine of shame. 
that if if so my very strong uh wish is that is to personally have this conversation and to join up with other folks who want to have this conversation at a deeply personal level which requires a very safe container and some agreements because if we're just if we're having it at a societal level if we're saying hey systemically those of us who are haves above level x need to do a b and c you know to level the playing field or to have a lot of impact or to demonstrate the ways in which extractive capitalism is broken um i i think the people who don't feel that way or people who won't you know either won't ever feel that way or might one day but aren't ready for it like the shame response will just i think it, it's not it's not calling people in it's calling people out you know as as my friend rachel also likes to say around racial justice um but uh so what i think is important is that you know we are not viewing this enough thing as necessarily a cap on consumption or a cap on net worth that it's much more about each of us questioning for ourselves if we're still in a kind of drive towards accumulation or preservation what's driving that like what are the underlying promises or agreements we're making with ourselves or with family members that are driving that and then i think getting very curious and humbly curious about are those drives accurate and are those promises likely to be borne out or not um you know and so for me it was like this idea of oh wow our consumption and our net worth of you know whatever tripled in a decade or 15 years whatever it was at the time i did that meditation retreat and if that just keeps happening like i'm i'm not going to enjoy that like yeah there'll be the novelty of flying private perhaps or the novelty of having an even nicer home or something but it's like the returns for me anyway have become so diminishing that when i held them up next to the amount of impact that that surplus could have there was there was no kind of comparison for me um now that can be really different and i already live a really you know a 0.1% lifestyle so like there are others who you know may live an 80th percentile lifestyle where like there's no reduction in consumption that they want to do or there could be someone who lives a 0.001% lifestyle and there's no reduction in consumption they want to do which is fine i think for each of us to find the level of consumption and and the level of accumulation and preservation and then once those are defined you can solve for the level of impact and then i know there'll be some people listening to this saying wait the world's falling apart we should define the level of impact first and let the others be subservient to that which i think is totally fine if that's where you're at and that's how you want to do it i just think the more we can avoid evangelizing to others and the more we can just really do our own work and be transparent and vulnerable about how we're approaching it the better yeah and so how do you do that just a, a short sort of nuts and bolts like i mean how do you create a container to get beyond sort of the shame quotient like i mean what like i mean what do those agreements actually look like be between a small group it's a great question i mean i think the best model for it that that i have found is is the deep impact circle within tonic that you know there are just a few of right now and and tonic forums certainly can also go very very deep um the deep impact circle has kind of a more um guided curriculum if you will or guided direction 
Um, and so the agreements there are, you know, around utter confidentiality, around it, around keeping it very personal as opposed to theoretical, um, mm -hmm. and less about, I mean, to use your metaphor, much more about poetry and less about grammar. So we're really not interested in presentations about your portfolio or presentations about a cool new measurement tool. We're interested in kind of what's your relationship to wealth? Um, what's your theory of change and why? Um, so like really personal stuff and how you're applying it and where you're hitting roadblocks and <clears throat> have we hit similar roadblocks and how might our experience inform yours? So at least in the, in the deep impact circle, I've been a part of, people in it have been so willing to be really open and vulnerable with their own journeys that that just builds trust like the, the fact yeah. that you're willing to tell me all of that about yourself means i'm willing to go to my uncomfortable place with you um so i think that's the biggest thing is like what the level of vulnerability and, and trust that we want from people in a group with us or even in a dyad with us mm -hmm. will pretty much usually equal the amount of vulnerability and transparency we're willing to bring. Mm -hmm. uh, how much of it, uh, how much of um, this enoughness question uh, comes, like how much light gets thrown on it from outside of impact circles? Meaning that you just talked about, um, you know, I mean, you just talked about you know, tonic, and you talked about your firm, and you talked about going to, uh, you know, you have certain teachers and so forth. But let's take a more pedestrian version of Brent Kessel when, like, you're walking with just a backpack from, like, maybe I see, I know you live from, you're able to walk or bike from your house to, like, your office. Yep. And, and just talk about how sort of your pedestrian life sort of shapes your thoughts on uh, enoughness. Now, I know that there's, a certain amount of stark uh, impoverishment on the material realm um, there where between I know where you live and I have a sense of where your office is. And I mean, you can, I mean, if you go down one street, it's much different than sort of another street. Yep. So I'm curious, I mean, do you use that as like, I mean, do you invite that in and like, does it inform your uh, thoughts and behaviors around enoughness or, or are you feeling like I have my tight little sort of impact version of it um i'm just wondering if there's more like um, a much more stark visceral moment around enoughness yeah i love that question um and i love the word pedestrian um yeah so that has been affecting me recently i mean for for decades it hasn't and you know santa monica has been one of the homeless capitals of the united states because we have such a temperate climate and a city government that that is very friendly to homeless people and unhoused people and you know we have a number of shelters here um but literally like there's you know there's a coffee place four doors down from my office's front entrance and so i walk there a few times a week and pass two or three homeless people every single time and would just never think twice about it yeah. um and then you know with the pandemic and the, we live pretty close to the VA administration here in West LA, who made a decision some months ago to allow uh, the homeless to move. They gave them some larger tents and 
a lot. And initially they had to be on the sidewalk. And then so stupid because there were these acres and acres of amazing grass and bathrooms that weren't being used at night and stuff in the VA facilities. And so they allowed them to move in and create this like tent city on the lawn. But so I drive by that or walk by that, you know, a number of times. And, and then that did start to hit me. I was like, um, wow. Okay. I'm, you know, I'm making a choice. I don't know. Like I'm, my impact stuff is, is very focused um, in on effectiveness and in other places. And this is right here right now. And it's not that I, that makes me want to remove resources because I still am really interested in where my resources can do the most good. And I, there's an opportunity cost to everything, right? So if I help the yeah. person in my neighborhood, I'm by definition, not helping, you know, the, the kid with, you know, a, a treatable disease in wherever, uh, some other part of America or Latin America or whatever. Um, so I still want to be effective and I still kind of want to look at opportunity costs, but it did have me, I, I did shift some of my resources and time towards domestically focused, uh, one in particular domestically focused nonprofit that has been very effective at bringing uh, homeless and extremely poor families with children eight and under out of poverty, um, combination of direct payments and coaching. So it does affect me and, and it doesn't, um, you know, I think, I think both, I think it's still, this is a really interesting question because it's, you know, I know in effective altruism, they, uh, they sometimes give the example of, you know, if you were at a river wearing a $2,000 suit and, you know, a child fell in the rushing river, would you think twice about jumping in, you know, with your $2,000 suit to save the child? Let's assume the suit gets ruined by jumping in. Of course you wouldn't, like everybody would save a life for $2,000. And then the metaphor is, well, you can save lives for $2,000 with malarial bed nets and with other kinds of things. So why aren't we using every kind of $2,000 suit as it were to save a life? and I think that's that's very intriguing, and I also think it's a it's a kind of moral trap because then you can have essentially a race to the bottom financially speaking, but okay, then I should give everything away as long as my life is not in danger and obviously no one not about obviously but my sense is very few people are arguing for that um so then the question in my mind is where is the middle way? Like where, where is the right balance point? And I don't think there's one right answer. I think there's someone who says, yeah, I'll give away one $2,000 suit, save one life, and then go on about my business. And like, all right, that's kind of their karma and what they're going to do. And then there's the person who goes to the other extreme and I'm somewhere in the middle of those. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it, you know, I have a friend who, who said to me probably 15 years ago, he said, I never resist a generous impulse. And I tried <laughs> to follow that. Um, so I've had moments where I like, I'm like, I should just give that homeless person $100. And then I've gone up and done it. Um, and it's a really cool experiment to do. Um, and then there's times where I've had the impulse. And I'm like, no, 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 don't do that. That's crazy. Like, and so I haven't followed it. Um, but I think my my kind of growing edge answer to your question gino would be i would like the pedestrian brent kessel to feel the suffering that he passes and encounters more more 
embodied, you know, more somatically on a day-to-day basis than he currently does. Brent, before we wrap up, um, where can people learn more about uh, Brent Kissel and, I mean, these thoughts or, I mean, what uh, direction would um, you um, have them head to if, I mean, they wanted to learn learn more about you? Oh, that's sweet. That's a nice invitation. Um, well, my bio and a little bit of my life story about growing up in apartheid South Africa and, and then moving to the States and how I kind of came to do what I do professionally is at abacuswealth.com forward slash Brent. Um, and then uh, there is also uh, um, the paper I just mentioned, uh, the racial wealth gap dot com is where we are hosting that um and so if folks want to sort of understand more about what has created the racial wealth gap in america and what can be done about it they can go to the racial wealth gap.com and then lastly um robert put up kind of a simple website to just sort of uh start putting out some of these thoughts about enough um and the url for that is enough dash project dot org so not dot com but dot org enough dash project dot org and people can go there and just read a little bit about how we're thinking about enough and this kind of inner exploration and there there aren't really follow-up action items yet but um we're we're thinking about that like what are the structures what are the ways in which we could support people who want to be uh doing this journey for themselves thanks brent um Always a pleasure to have this conversation, and um, it's, it's by definition Exhibit A for an eternal conversation because there is no answers. But boy, boy, does it feel alive! So I mean, thank you so much for um, not only sharing yourself, but uh, making yourself available to be heard um, and shared with. I mean, the uh, community by those we know and also um, those we don't know as well. Thanks, Gino. This is great. Thank you for listening to The Journey to Impact. If you enjoyed this episode, help us spread the word by subscribing to this series on Apple Podcasts and sharing with your friends on your favorite social media platform. For a preview of our previous or upcoming episodes, visit www.poetryofimpact.com.